So it's great to see all of you guys uh, today. Uh, this uh, discussion is on the Masoretic accents, and uh, I have titled this um, I've titled this session a functional introduction to the Masoretic accents because um, I, I think uh, mostly what I want to do here is just kind of introduce the accents to you. Uh, I find that a lot of now we will get into some weeds. But if those weeds are too high or you just don't care, then just disregard them. But um, I, I find that a lot of times what, what happens with students is we teach them alpha, we teach the alphabet, we teach the vowels. And then the first question that I get when we jump into the Hebrew Bible is, now what's this? And what's that? And what's this and that? What is that little mark? And so like these accents occur in our Hebrew Bibles. And so what are they? Right. And so that's what we mean by kind of a functional approach and a little more than just naming them like what what do they do? Why are they there? What's the point? How can they be helpful? Can they be helpful? Right. Are they necessary? Right. These are some of the questions that that I hope to uh, to at least give you some information on uh, today. That being said, I have to admit that I, uh, I, I do enjoy the accents. I am uh, influenced by my professor that the accents are, are uh, exceedingly valuable. You're shaking your head, Dr. Fuller. Here, yes, so our, my, my supervisor for my PhD and my Hebrew professor. I took Hebrew with Dr. Betts here at the seminary, but we used Dr. Fuller's grammar, and then Dr. Fuller was my supervisor. So I, uh, I was required to know these inside and out. And, um, and, and so I find them very helpful. Uh, I've talked to some other Hebrew professors who, uh, you know, you kind of ask the question of what's your opinion of the accents because it's across the board. There's a big spectrum. What's your opinion of the accents? And it can go all the way from they're irrelevant and we should take them out to um, I cannot read without them. Uh, if anybody was in the uh, session yesterday with Carl Kutz and Rebecca Josberger, uh, that's Becky's answer. I asked her, what's, what's your opinion of the accents? And she said, I can't read without them. And uh, even in the last session, we had, you know, it was read the passage and you asked, where are the accent marks? I know. And, uh, and I, that was the first thing that went through my mind, too. And so is it a crutch then? Maybe it is. But if it helps students to understand what's happening in the text and to compartmentalize what's going on in the text such that they can grasp it, I'm like, Let's use that, right? It's there. Let's, the, the Masoretes put it there for a reason, okay? Um, so that's, that's kind of where we're going. That's kind of my apology for this session of here's why I think that this can be important and hopefully helpful to you. I do have some just introductory remarks here that are good for, I think, uh, just overarching understanding of the accents. And the first one is this, that the, the, the accent marks were originally for cantillation, meaning singing of the text, right? So how are you going to memorize the text? You memorize the text by putting it to music. You put it to music by chanting uh, in, in a uh, very Jewish kind of way. And, and these accents are there for chanting or cantillation of the text. That is very helpful for kind of putting a set of fences around other things I'm going to say later about the exegetical value of the accents. There are going to be some places that, listen, when you tell students this can be exegetically significant, they're going to find an athnach and go, boom, there's the meat of the verse, there's my preaching point, there's my, and just, and completely miss that, no, these were originally just singing marks to help with memorizing and chanting of the text. 
Uh, there's a new book that came out. Uh, re actually, it's not a new book. It's a second edition, uh, and I can't remember who did it. Jacobson is the name that's coming to my mind. That might not be read, right, but it is a, a teaching tool, a book of how to chant the Hebrew Bible, and it's using the accent marks. So they have a variety of lengths and melodies that are associated with each mark. That's the original intention, so I have to, I have to grant that. Also, accents are going to usually mark the tone of the word um, or and or they're going to demarcate the syntax of the sentence. So this is where the, the accents start to be helpful. Uh, one of the things, those of you that were in the class uh, this past week that we um, that we saw or that we discussed is that in a construct package and, and if, if I speak beyond anybody, please stop me and, and tell me to stop. But in a construct package, uh, we discussed the morphological changes of the construct noun are as a result of the accent shifting to the next word, which leaves uh, syllables that are in open propertonic syllables that will reduce, and we, we kind of can anticipate those vowel changes, but it's as a result of the accent change. And then we got into the text, and we're sitting here looking at an accent on every single word. And some of those are disjunctive, some of those are conjunctive, right? And so some of those run words together, some of them break words apart, and the construct packages always run them together, but even though the accent has shifted to the next word for morphological purposes, that word in the Hebrew text still has an accent on it, so you can know where the, where the tone or stress of the word is. We'll talk a little bit more about demarcating syntax in the sentence. Uh, um, I... Um, that, that's where we'll get into a little more of like, what's the function of these things. This third point on the screen about providing exegetical insights um, or interpretive benefit, I'll show you some examples of those a little bit later as well. That's where it does start to get a little hairy. That's where it gets a little bit, okay, the accent is there. The accent marks the tone. It gives us some syntactical help, construct package, these things are wedded together. But like when you start to now say the accents are giving us interpretive value, uh, that's where I step back just a little bit. Uh, I've got others who are like, nope, full bore, interpretation all the way. The Masoretes were telling us how the Bible should be read. Like, uh, kind of like a good commentary. You might like it, you might not. It might be right, it might be wrong. Uh, but that's the point where I'm going to step back a little bit uh, from the accents and kind of at least hesitate before I say that's the interpretive value of the accents. But I think they can be there. Uh, last point here on the introduction is that the word for these accent marks is called the te'amim, the te'amim, uh, which means an understanding or sense. And so in other words, the very name given to these accent marks is understanding or sense of the text, okay? Um, so those, there are those things. Dwayne Garrett, um, also, I've got several slides here that I think kind of build the, the use of these. Uh, Dwayne Garrett has a good little summary in his grammar of the uh, cantillation marks. And again, this is gonna be a little bit redundant, but we've got musical notation, marking the accented syllable. Uh, he does, uh, agree with dividing the verse into syntactical units, but you'll see here that uh, Dr. Garrett does not go so far as exegetical value. He would just say distinguishing lines, uh, lines of poetry. And I, I may, I'm going to throw this in here. Um, uh, Andy and Nate are in here from, from Bible Arc. I do find that the accent marks very often help me break the clauses. 
Uh, in, in fact, if I just go through a Hebrew text, especially narrative, but if I just go through a Hebrew text and mark the disjunctive accents, most of the time that's going to be where my clauses break anyway. Um, most of the time, not always. But that's when you go, oh, why? <laughs> why not, right? Um, and and in, especially in poetry as well. Very often you'll see the ethnoc or the oleveorid. Uh, are the accents where you get the, the two of parallel lines that are, that are together. Okay, so those are from Dwayne Garrett. Here's from uh, Mark Futado. I brought these resources with me, and then I didn't even get them out. Um, got a few things to show you here. So this is, uh, this is Mark Futado's most recent book on the Masoretic accents. I'll... Uh, uh, very good basics, uh, just very simplified version, but, but helpful, I think. Uh, I've got a funny story about this I have to stop and tell you, and don't anybody throw me under the bus here. Uh, this is Fuller's textbook, uh, and he's got a chapter in here on the accents. Uh, modern grammarians hate this book. They have critiqued it dramatically, but the one place where almost everybody agrees that this book is worth its value is the chapter on the accents. Um, so if you're interested in that, there's the chapter here, okay? So Mark, through Daily Dose, was working on this book, and I didn't know what he was working on, and he asked me for resources on the accents. And so I sent him this chapter <laughs> and several other things, resources, that he has used and cited in this book. And then he gave a talk on this session on, on accents at ETS, Evangelical Theological Society, and I was sitting right there, and Dr. Fuller was in the room as well. And Mark said, he, somebody asked him a question about something. And he was like, I, I don't even remember where I got it. I think Adam maybe sent me the file. And I was like, oh, no, what have I done? So I, I'm still alive. We're good. <laughs> right? I, I didn't get taken out by the mob uh, in any way. But... Um, Nonetheless, uh, you can, you can kind of hear the trickle down from, from some of these other resources uh, in the new ones. This is another one by uh, Sunjing Park. Uh, he is at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and it came out about the same time. A little more academic. Uh, Mark's volume is a little more accessible. This one's a little more academic, uh, published by Cambridge. But good just entry points to the accents if you're interested in those, okay? So here are, uh, here are Mark Furtado's uh, benefits. Again, word stress, and then sense. When he talks about sense, he gives these two examples, and look at these two verbs. If you take the accents away, I know this is not super big, I'm sorry. If you take the accents away out of these two verbs, you have exactly the same thing. But because the accent falls on the sheen here, you know it's a call perfect 3CP of shuv, meaning they returned without a final quotation mark. And if you have the accent here, you realize that it's a call perfect 3CP of Shavah. So that's, that's the idea of sense. Only, only insofar as the accent is going to help you determine what you're actually looking at. And it, it does matter in a few places. Here's another one that we looked at this week in the class. Uh, in our class, this is Hashavah. Uh, can anybody parse that for me if you want to? Uh, and Naomi, re Naomi returned along with Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her. Is that a participle or is that a perfect three FS? I would say participle. You would say a participle. Why, was, why is it a participle? Because the ending 
Okay, so we've got the feminine singular ending here and the definite article. We don't put a definite article on the perfect, right? So you take out all the vowel points, take out all the accents, and that's a participle all day long. But what the Masoretes wanted to do is if you take shava, the participle should actually, point, should actually be accented on the second syllable. Shava is the participle. Ha-shava. But here it's ha-shava, which is the feminine singular perfect of shuv. Okay? So the Masoretes marked it as a perfect, but it's clearly a participle. Were they wrong? Or did they want to tell you that we understand a participle is typically a durative aspect, returning, and yet we want to make it clear that this event has already happened. So we're going to preserve the participle, but we're going to accent it as a perfect so that you know that event has already happened. Right? It's not, and Naomi returned along with Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who is returning from the field of Moab. You know, Naomi left her at some point, and now here comes Ruth along. No, 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 they came together. This has already happened, okay? Now, that, that's like, those are the weeds, okay? <laughs> that's some of the weeds. You've got to, in that point, you've got to even know, number one, that the participle accents here and the perfect accents here. But nonetheless, you can see that accent gives you some of the sense of kind of what's happening in the text such that it's clear, not that you may get confused on how that participle is functioning, okay? Next is chanting, and the, these, are, uh, these are Mark Furtado's three. We've talked about those several times, but just giving you some more support there. Now, let me give you some background on these accents. A lot of this largely comes from Fuller's chapter. But um, <clears throat> as it relates to the kind of tradition of the accents, Ju the Jews take these traditions all the way back to Ezra. And this is the passage that they refer to. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave sense, uh, and they gave sense, meforash, uh, or clearly, and gave, they put wisdom, they put sense uh, so that the people understood the reading. Now, whether you agree with that or not, this is, the, this is how far back the tradition goes in, in the Jewish mind. Uh, the Babylonian Talmud, I think I have some of these. Yes, the Babylonian Talmud says this. He takes the position of the rules. I don't need to read all of this, but you can kind of see here. Uh, he read from the book and the law of God. This refers to the scripture distinctly or clearly. This refers to the translation into Aramaic. Thank you for your, your Targum. Uh, sorry, I'm a Targum guy as well. That was... Only because my dissertation was, anyway. And they gave the sense. This refers to the division of sentences. So that they understood the reading, this refers to the rules governing correct intonation. So both here, there, now, whatever you want to do with the Talmud is up to you. I'm just saying this is the tradition behind the, the accents, is that the sense of the, of the verse is the divisions of the sentences, probably the accents, disjunctive accents, and understanding of the reading refers to correct intonation, probably how to accent it, how to say it. Okay, so taking that all the way back to Ezra and using Nehemiah 8.8 8 as the support for that. Here's a very similar passage from the Jerusalem Talmud. Um, and they gave the sense, proper articulation, read clearly. The translation gave the sense, proper articulation, so that people understood. This refers to the tradition on the meaning. So the tradition there of, of what these words mean. So again, you can see here some of that historical background for where these accents come from. 
Uh, Pirkei Avot says this, Moses received the law from Sinai and he handed it down. This is, look at this word. Anybody know what that word? Masar. Masar. And, and what, uh, what do we, look here, and the prophets handed it down. The elders handed it down. Joshua handed it down to the men of the great synagogue. This word right here is where we get the word Masoretes. So the Masoretic accents come from this, this same verbal root. Okay? That doesn't prove anything, but you can see where they're getting the tradition and the value of preserving these accent marks in, uh, in the text. Those are all Jewish affirmations. If you want non-Jewish affirmation, again, just historical background, this comes from the uh, Consensus Helvetica from 1675. And it says, in particular, the, or the Hebrew original of the Old Testament, which we have received to this day, is handed down. That, they're not writing in Hebrew, but that's interesting terminology here. By the Jewish church, who, uh, unto whom formerly were committed the oracles of God, Romans 3.2, is not only in its consonants, but in its vowel, either the vowel points themselves, or at least in the power of the points, not only in its matter, but in its words, inspired of God. Now... <laughs> <clears throat> this is probably where my professor would land. <laughs> okay, maybe the accent marks themselves are not inspired, but the power of them is, the thrust of them is, the, the goal of them is inspired. I'm not going to go this far, all right? I'm not going to go this far that they are inspired. But you can see how throughout history there have been groups who understand the value of the accents even to the point of, of linking it with inspiration. I, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's accurate. I think there are places where the, the Masoretes could, um, could have gotten it wrong, so to speak. Um, but you see others, others have not, okay? So let's, uh, let, me, uh, let me give you, what do I have written here? <clears throat> Ah, this next point, don't pay attention to the screen just yet. Actually, let me back up there just so that you're not distracted. Um, even if the accents are not representative of an, originally, of an original divinely inspired text, they at least provide an ancient rabbinic vocalization and interpretation of the scriptures, uh, which is an incredibly value, valuable resource. Uh, Dr. Fuller's argument here, which I'm sympathetic to, is that if you want to ask someone, if you want to ask a German what's going on in a German text, if you want to find out what's going on in a German text, it's best to go ask a German. It's, it's not going to be super helpful to go ask somebody who's studied German, even for a long period of time. Go ask a native speaker. Uh, these rabbinic sources are closer to the text in, in, the, in the tradition of preservation of the text. And so if you want to ask somebody what's going on in the text, go ask the rabbis. They, they, they know what's going on in their text. And so that's, that's a proximity kind of argument. So I understand it's not super strong, but, but I, do find it, uh, I do find it helpful. A little bit of uh, word about dating of the accents and also balance, right? So we've now talked about the Talmud. We've talked about Ezra, but the accent marks do not enter the Hebrew text until around 700 A.D., A.D. 700. So you, you, we just have to admit that, okay? We have to admit that. The Talmud, uh, I have a date here completed around A.D. 600. I, I would maybe even go a little earlier than that. But um, the Talmud being completed about 100, let's say 100 years before the accent marks were added in, the Talmud does not mention any of the accents by name. 
And so, you know, the question now comes is, if they don't mention them by name, how important were they really? And I, you know, again, just this is some of the balance that that we have to bring to the conversation, uh, even with some of these strong um, assertions of the value of the accents. There is uh, an early second century B.C. Septuagint manuscript, which I have not gotten a hold of this one yet, but I would love to see it if anybody's aware of where I can find it. Uh, a, A second century B.C. Septuagint manuscript that as it was written, there are spacings in various places. And the argument is that in most of those spacings, it follows the Masoretic accents. Uh, and we're talking second century B.C. at that point. So, you know, again, it, you, you can't prove that, but it, but it is, what's that? So I have... So that's a great question. I have this in my notes under the uh, under a section that I have attributed to Dwayne Garrett on page 278 of his grammar. I'm only assuming that's where I got that note from. So, but so yes, you check me on that. But uh, perhaps he's the one that that mentioned that one. Um, the first place that the rabbis begin to mention the accents by name is not until the 9th century. By name, like let's talk about an ethnach and a siluk and those kinds of things. It's not until the 9th century. So again, just some back up a little bit and build that kind of fence, build that, that uh, buffer to kind of say, okay, we, we've got to take those things into account. Dr. Fuller offers these two cautions that the accents follow their own rules of syntax and that they are based on musical considerations. So there may be places where the accents contradict what we might think of as normal stylistic prose or syntax because the musical flow is simply different. Okay? And I think this is where we start to get into to this conversation. So look at this example here. This is not a fuller example. I have attributed this one, so uh, don't, don't put this on him. But uh, look at these hymns, right? Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. That breaks the syntax. It's a pausal form. Everybody with me? We do this all the time. The Masoretes marked it. That's all. And when I think... Of God, his son not sparing. That's a great comma right there, and we need it. But we break the musical notation here. So we break the syntax because of musical notation. So sometimes the accents are, are not exegetically significant. They're just following a musical notation. Okay. Um, so we, again, we do this all the time. Um, and then here's Fuller's second. Uh, this is his second warning. Is sometimes they just don't make any sense. Okay, <laughs> so, uh, so there you go. Uh, pause right there for just a moment. Any questions or comments about that introductory segment? Anything? Okay, so, so I find great historical value, or great historical precedent for valuing the accents, not to the level of being inspired, but certainly giving us the sense and the benefit and the help of, of the text, okay? Uh, yes, sir. Yes. So is there any Jew or Jewish scholar 
publish any you know, accent. On the accent materials. Yeah, yeah. So what do they think about the accent? That's a good question. Because um, I'm even thinking back to like John Wicks and uh, Yisrael Yevin has done work on the, uh, on the accents. Um, in fact, I, I would refer you to the... Um, I would refer you to the bibliographies in these, these books as well. Uh, Bill Barrick at uh, the Masters has done work on the accents. And Garrett, uh, I'm looking to see if I find any here real quick. Um, I've seen Paige Kelly's book. Yeah. Used in synagogues by Jews. Oh, really? Yeah. William Wicks has, has two big treatises from the 1800s and then Yisrael Yevin did the introduction to the Tiberian Mazora, which also included the accents. Um, that was translated by E.J. Revel. So, so yeah, not a lot. That would be a good question. I would, I would be interested to ask. Here's, here's my hunch. Here, this would be my hunch, is that native Israeli speakers aren't super concerned about them because they already know what's going on in the syntax. Yeah, and so, so that's one of, one of my arguments for at least a second semester or an introductory level of Hebrew is that we just don't have that familiar, our students don't have that familiarity, uh, that heart familiarity. Now, we want to be developing that in them, and we want to be training that in them, but they don't yet have it, so let's let the accents help us break down and compartmentalize the text. So, that's, yeah, that's a good question. Um, let's talk about what the accents are now. This is where we kind of get into some just, okay, here's some introductory material. This is the uh, tabula at centum that comes with uh, the BHS, if you have that or are familiar with it. And I put it side by side with this chart that you should have on your handout, uh, only to show you the similarities. They should be almost the same here. Um, this one is in Latin in various places, and so I just don't find that helpful. So I made this one myself. But what I want you to see here is that in both of these charts, whichever one you use as your little handy-dandy guide that you put in your Bible with you, um, they go from relative, uh, they, go, they decrease in relative strength is what I'm trying to say. So as you go down this list, you're finding weaker and weaker disjunctive accents which means you're only going to find these accents here at the bottom, these D3 or these counts, if you, if you like the old medieval terminology, you're going to only find these in longer sentences where there's even room for them. Most of the time, when you get to a Pashta uh, or a Revia, you're, you're getting, that's about as deep into this list as you're going to get. So you might think, oh, holy smokes, there's these three pages of accents that I've got to learn. No, you know, if you learn these, if you learn down to like the Pashta and up, I mean, if you get all these in, I guess, you're going to have the vast majority of them. You don't see Shashelet very often. You don't see Zakef Gadol very often because those are going to be replacements for a Zakef Katon. A Segolta is going to be a replacement for a Zakef Katon if you have a sentence that has multiple Zakef Katons. So like my point is you don't really have to memorize that many of them to have a functional benefit and use of them. Yes, sir. No, it does. The, the ordering does somewhat hold true even within the... Uh, now, I just told you this one is a little bit wonky because... Uh, okay, this is a great question. If you can follow me with this, 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 is, this is a good question, okay? So if you, if you have a sentence, let's let these represent words, if you will. 
Okay, if these represent words, we've got our sof pasuk saluk here. Um, I've got to put one more segment in. There's another word, okay. Here's our athnach. In the athnach segment, we expect to see a zakef, and you could possibly see a, another zakef. When you have multiple zakefs, the first one is the strongest one. But the more zakefs you get, you're going to get one of these that substitutes as a segolta. So the segolta is stronger, you just don't see it very often because it's going to take a couple of zakefs before you see one. Yeah. So, so, so the answer, I guess, to your question is yes, but you don't see it as often. The Zakef Katon is stronger than the Zakef Gadol, which is funny because the great Zakef is the weaker one, but <laughs> nonetheless. Um, so there's, there's the chart. I, I have students keep this beside of you as you're reading because at the very least, what you're going to be able to do is recognize, okay, I see a Pashta. Um, it's disjunctive. You don't have to worry about weight. You don't have to worry about sentence structure. You can just know, okay, there's a break right here. There's a slight break right there. That is almost the extent of the functional introduction to the accents. If you can just recognize, uh, here's the next one. If you can recognize which ones are disjunctive and which ones are conjunctive, that will, that will be three quarters of the, of the benefit that you could get from them because what you start to do is this. You can break a Hebrew sentence down into its component parts and you know what goes with what. Right? What's related to what? Now, once you break it into its subordinate parts, you're going to have to ask the question, how is this piece subordinate to this piece? And how is this piece subordinate to these pieces? And how is this whole piece functioning? To so you, there's much more to be done here as far as the relative weight. But if you just know the subject of a nominal clause is broken off from its verbal phrase, you, you at least you can recognize that clearly in the accents. Okay? It's not, my, here's the, it, it's not simply just a function of language. Take that back. Scratch that. I lied. It is a function of language. That's how Hebrew does it. But it's not just this random reassortment of word order, and the Masoretes help you to break that apart so that you can see it clearly. Okay? So conjunctive and disjunctive accents. Um, <clears throat> here's where we get into a bit of the hierarchy uh, that, uh, that Andy, you were, you were maybe asking about. And this is from Dr. Fuller's chapter. Uh, you're, you're welcome. You can take that if you want to. Here's an even worse one, okay? <laughs> so, so notice here, forget it, don't even look at it. I'm going to show you mine. Uh, here you go. <clears throat> okay, so this one, uh, this one, I put this together from those other charts that I just burned through. So, so I, I've put this together but I find it to be a helpful, helpful visual aid. When you're looking at this hierarchy of the accents, you're, you'll notice that we kind of move uh, further and further down that list with relative weight. Do you see this? And so what you've got is a near disjunctive accent and a far disjunctive accent that is associated with each parent accent, if, if you will. Everybody following me on this? So when you see the sof pasuk, the near disjunctive accent is the saluk. In fact, you always see the saluk on the same word with the sof pasuk. So much so that um, many people just make the sof pasuk saluk 
the big disjunctive accent, the one that shows the end of a verse. But the Saluk and the Athnach are actually on the same power scale, if you will. Okay? Now, if I've broken my verse into the Saluk segment, what accent am I looking to see is the near disjunctive accent? And it's the Tifcha. And what is the far one? It's the Zakef Katon. So if you, uh, this one's a little messed up, but like I, I don't have enough room there to do it. I'll show you some examples here in a moment. All this chart does is it helps you to see, okay, when I break these down into smaller and smaller segments, what am I expecting to see in front of it as far as a near disjunctive accent and a far disjunctive accent? I'm going to give you one rule. You can put this in your notes and, and, and keep it if you would like. But one that we found uh, even in, in reading Ruth this week that is kind of helpful is that the tifcha, the tifcha must occur on either the first or second word in front of the saluk or the athnach. So when the tifcha pops up, it, it has a rule for where it can occur. Just the same way as the saluk has a rule. The saluk must always be on the word immediately in front of the sof pasuk. It can't be anywhere else. So if you see a little vertical line that looks like a saluk somewhere else, it's a metheg. <laughs> okay? The saluk has to be there. The tifcha has to be the, on the first or second word in front of a saluk or an athnach. It can't be anywhere else. What that does for you exegetically is if the word, if the saluk, or sorry, if the tifcha could fall on either of two words and it falls on one of them and it's a little bizarre, there might be something there. If syntactically you kind of go, why is there a break right there? The Masoretes may have moved it there because they can. It doesn't have to be on the first word. It can be on the second one. So these are the kinds of questions you can start to ask yourself about the text by having a basic knowledge of the accents. The next little rule that I want to give to you is, um, is the far disjunctive accents, uh, especially here. Again, once you get to this point, you, you're going to capture almost, you're going to capture nearly all of the sentences, probably 80% of the sentences in the Hebrew Bible you're going to catch just at this level. You're not going to get down here. These are really long verses. The far disjunctive accents, the far disjunctive accents in each of these columns, those have flexibility with where they occur. So the near disjunctive accents have to occur in a certain place. The far ones can occur anywhere between here and there. Where that becomes important, especially, let's say, with something like the athnach, is if the athnach does not simply break the verse in two pieces, but it occurs very early in the verse, or if it occurs very late in the verse, that's where you might find exegetical importance. Because, the, because it's not just simply a product of breaking the verse in half. Because it's fluid as to where it can go, the Masoretes can put that major pause. Uh, I, I think I described it this week in the class as like this kind of small Selah. <laughs> They're putting that pause potentially in a place that's important. I want you to sing this longer because that's where the meat of the verse is. And I'll show you some examples of that. It's possible, okay? It's possible. I, I don't want you to hear me say every time the athnach is where you don't expect it, that that's your preaching point. That that's where, you know, don't write your next commentary on the accents. I'm just saying, 
it's possible. So there's, there's that chart. Here's the same uh, accent hierarchy for the pro poetry accents. Poetry accents do not get the same uh, attention as, uh, as the prose accents only because the uh, poetic accent system in the Hebrew Bible only applies in Job, Psalms, and Proverbs. Uh, and I would argue that Hebrew poetry goes well beyond just those books. Uh, but as far as the accentuation is concerned, uh, poetry is just those three books. Biggest difference here is that you have this accent called the Oleveyorid that is the same weight as the Athanach. If you have a longer sentence, you'll see it. And I think on your all's handout, you have all these little footnotes uh, listed there. I didn't screenshot them for this, but you can see kind of how those work. But uh, prose is what we're going to see most often. The uh, the Oleve Yorid is a um, it's a it's a combination of um, it's a combination of the Yetiv. No shoot, what is it? It's it's on the back of that sheet. Um, it's this little guy and and this one. That one's at the top. This one's at the bottom and that one's at the top? Oh, okay. You see, I don't even look at those. I could care less. Um, no, so the back of, let me see, uh, this one right here. There it is. Yep, yep. It's one of those where, like, I'll know it when I see it, but I can't, I can't reproduce it. <coughs> okay. Uh, disjunctive accents show a break between words. Conjunctive accents joins, uh, join words together, a construct chain. We've already mentioned that. The athnach usually does break the verb, the, word, uh, the verse in halves. That is generally true, uh, which means it very often is not exegetically significant. And then these weaker disjunctive accents are going to divide uh, the major subdivisions. So I, we've already talked about those things, but there they are in writing. Let's talk about pausal forms for just a second. Okay, um, pausal forms. Uh, this is from Dr. Garrett's grammar as well, where he's trying to in introduce value of the accents. So you guys are familiar with a pausal form. So look at this, uh, look at the word right here. <clears throat> uh, your eyes, uh, the seeing ones, uh, your eyes saw that which the Lord uh, did at Baal Peor for all uh, the men who uh, walked after Baal Peor. Uh, destroyed. <laughs> uh, the Lord destroyed the, your God, destroyed them from your midst, right? Uh, if you are looking at a chart, right? Uh, a chart, you're learning first year Hebrew and they give you the pronominal suffixes chart. We all know that we expect to see a vocal schwa right here. But because of the heavy disjunctive accent, we get the segol. So what a heavy disjunctive accent will do in a pausal form is three things. Number one, it'll reveal the vowel that was hidden by a vocal schwa reduction. So it'll reveal the vowel that should have been there. Or it will lengthen a vowel that is already there. Look at this one, right? This is the 1CS suffix on a plural noun. Hit, uh, my words, plural. But we learned it in the chart as a patachiod. Why is it a kometz? Because that pausal form has lengthened it. This is, uh, this is normal, 
Okay, this is a product of language, but it explains why we see a vowel that is different from the chart that we made you memorize. Okay, so again, just helping to explain some of those things. Those, um, those uh, vowel differences, the accents are causing that, so to speak. Now, notice the song I have right here. Anybody know, you guys that were in the class this week, you can't cheat, but anybody know where we're going with this song when it comes to pausal forms? Love so amazing, so divine. Did you hear it? It's not divine, it's divine. We lengthened out the I to a double E because it's a pausal form in the musical notation. Okay, so that there, there's a little bit of just, it, it, this is just a product of cantillation, but when you got students who say, the chart told me it was a patachio, and now it's a cometio. What's going on? You're like, it's a pausal form. Heavy disjunctive accents do this. It's okay. Yes, sir. So on the connection between vowels and cantillation, um, for newer students, how do you get the frustration that the monotone must have been for? Yeah. Yes, yeah, so the, the kamitsatuf, by definition, must be in a closed and unaccented syllable. So when the accent has, is, when, when that, so I, I, with new students I say, when the T symbol is in a closed and unaccented symbol, syllable, then that is a kamitsatuf. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, you may or may not see it directly in these accent marks, but since the accent marks mark the stress of the word, then you'll be able to see clearly. I, I don't think I can. Um, there's a col. Yeah, yeah, right there. There it is. So see, makaif shifts the accent to the next word. This is all one constituent. Accent here is the pashta. That's a kamitsatuf because that's a closed and unaccented syllable. Yeah. And that one's actually a pretty easy one because most students memorize the vocabulary word as col anyway. Um, but yeah, we saw plenty of these this week in class that were, uh, um, in fact, there was one of the songs, this is funny, because I, do you guys, uh, Dominic Hernandez, you guys know, uh, studied at Bar-Ilan, fluent in Hebrew, he was my modern Hebrew professor, a dear friend of mine. Um, Dr. Fuller makes a big deal about comments, comments atuf, because at Hebrew Union, the first thing you do to enter into the PhD program is sit down with a professor and you read Hebrew. And if you miss a comet satuf, you're in remedial Hebrew immediately. <laughs> and so he makes a big deal out of it. We're singing songs. And there was one of these in, this, in a, I, the, the song we sang earlier today. There was one of these. The infinitive construct with a suffix. Right? That's a comet satuf. But in most modern pronunciations, it's going to just be an ah sound. But, but it's, 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 it's in a closed and unaccented syllable. Um, that's where we saw some of the wonky ones in class this week. But, so yeah, I'm not going to split hairs over that, but technically, yeah, that's right. So closed and unaccented syllable. Okay, let's, uh, let's talk now about syntactic meaning. Okay, syntactic meaning. Some of this stuff is going to kind of be like, so what? <clears throat> and I've got, to, I've got to hurry here. Some of this is going to be like, so what? But I want to show you how the accents can help. So look at this example right here. If you can read along with me, and he answered, and then he answered. Who answered? Hana'ar, the young man. 
Is that all of our noun phrase? No, because it's the young man who is modified by this nifal participle of Natsav who was being an overseer over the reapers. And he said, okay? So this whole thing, I've tried to use different blues. This whole thing is your subject. Everybody with me on that? Now, if, you're, if, if you've been doing it long enough, you probably can get the feel of that. But what we, what we found this week in class as we were reading Ruth is it was, uh, and he answered, uh, the young, okay, and the young man answered, uh, the, the one stationed over, the, oh, the young man who was stationed over the reapers answered and said, this, the, the accents make this clear, Revia, big break right there. Separate your main verb from your subject. And then notice the athnach. The tifcha is the near subordinate accent, so it has to occur on the word in front or to in front. It occurs here because it's bracketing off the whole subject before you get to the next verb. So just syntactically, you get some benefit there. And all you have to do is kind of notice that's major disjunct, that's major disjunct. This is a very light disjunct because the subject is different from its modification. But you, you can see those pieces very clearly, okay? I think I've got some other examples here. Here's another one, Ruth 3.1. What did I want to do with this one? Oh, I took the accents out of this one. Now I don't know what, now I don't know what to do with it, okay? And she said to her, well, who is the she? Naomi. Is it just Naomi? No, it, it's Naomi, her mother-in-law. So, so this is our whole subject. And she's the one who said to her, well, where does the direct speech start? My, my daughter, right here. Uh, okay, well, look at this. Athnach, right there. Break. So you know clearly where the direct speech starts. Look at this. And she said to her, you've got the definite, you've got the, this isn't verb subject. This is verb indirect object subject. So it's a little bit different on, the, on like how we would teach word order. But you know clearly, okay, tifcha right here, one, two words in front of the athnach. You've got the conjunctive accent munach right here that joins these words together. You know these two are read together, and all of that becomes the subject of this before we introduce the direct speech. Okay? Again, it's not, it's not necessary, but it brings clarity syntactically, in my, in my opinion. So, yes, sir. So the master reads, we're doing this for cancellation, but I'm almost seeing this as, like you were saying, a lot of times it's for comprehension. That's right. That's right. And, and that's exactly right. And, and you can go back and forth on, like, which came first, the comprehension or the cantillation. And, and you can kind of go back and forth on that road. Like, sometimes it seems like they sang it a certain way because they wanted to make a point. Other times you can say they just sang it and it fit the grammar just beautifully, right? And a lot, I mean, think about our musical phrasing even in English. We, we usually will phrase musical lines along syntactical breaks. It's not always, I've showed you some examples where it doesn't, but, but a lot of times we do. So, so the vast majority of the musical notation will follow clear syntactical breaks. Yes, sir. Is Mureka and uh, Tifcha always together? 
is, so this is uh, Mercha and Tifcha. Yeah. So there is a, this little chart right here. Nope, no, no, right here. Mm-hmm. Mercha, you can expect to see in front of a Saluk or a Tifcha. Here, here you have it in front of the Tifcha. So, uh, so yes, there, there's one little chart. What is that on the bottom of the, nope, first page? Nope. So on the bottom right-hand side of your first page, you've got the summary of prose conjunctive accents. That's just telling you in front of a particular disjunctive accent, what, what conjunctive are you expecting to see? But again, you don't need to memorize that. If you just know that's a conjunctive accent, then you know these things go together. If you know that's a conjunctive accent, you know those go together. You don't really care that that's the one you're supposed to have. Makes sense. But that little chart will tell you which one you're supposed to have. All right. Uh, Look at this one. Here's another example. I kind of got excited about these this morning and put a bunch of examples up here. But look at this. Heneboaz, Revia. Coming from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. Look at that. Athnach right there. It did not break right before the direct speech. The direct speech is included with the, the phrase here, uh, with the heavy accent there. I, I can't prove to you that that's important. I can't prove to you that what we hear off of Boaz's mouth is a blessing from Yahweh as, the, as like a main point or like let's focus on this. But you kind of read it and you go, hmm, he was an Ishki Borchayel. Ah, okay. But uh, this is the part I wanted to show you. Uh, behold, Boaz... And then we get the participle. So this is, this is normal construction, but you get the subject of the participle marked off from the verbal phrase. Okay, And again, you, you, you maybe don't need the accents for that, but if they are there, you clearly can see that. I call these nominal clauses. I, I call a nominal clause not a verbless clause. Those are also nominal clauses, but a, a, a nominal clause is a clause that begins with a noun. And so when that happens, you're trying to draw attention to the noun. Um, so uh, vav consecutives, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then. That's the play-by-play commentator. Um, and then the snap, and now the hold, and then the kick, and then it's good. Now let's talk about that kicker. He graduated from University of Georgia. He had these stats. That's how this sentence is going to work. And so you say, and behold, Boaz. Well, tell me what was going on with him. He was coming from Bethlehem. Ooh, and the story gets really good. Okay? And again, you could probably gather that without the accents, but isn't it a lot more fun with them? <laughs> uh, clausal meaning, this is, this is very similar. Uh, this is going to be the sense in which the, the accents group or separate uh, the sentence into clauses. This, this is the part where I, I find very helpful for making clause diagrams or block diagrams where it just most, most often those disjunctive accents are where I can put breaks and those are my clauses uh, that I want to, to diagram out. Um, the last one that I want to talk about here is semantic meaning and this is where, this is Fuller's term, but semantic meaning is where we're getting into <clears throat> the concepts of like interpretive value. Okay, so just from the get-go, I want you to know these next examples. I'm gonna give you the explanation for them, but, as, but again, I, I don't know. I can't prove it to you, okay? 
But if you look at uh, this one right here, in the beginning, <coughs> God created, God created, right? In the beginning, God created. So you've got your munach combining these two together. That's very beautiful, subject, verb, sorry, verb, subject. But where would you expect to see the biggest break in this clause, in this sentence? God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. You've got the prepositional phrase fronted. Do you see that? So you might expect the biggest break to be in the prepositional phrase. So for instance, in English, we would say, in the beginning, comma, God created the heavens and the earth. And we would run all of this together. But that's not what gets the biggest break. In this sentence, the biggest break happens right here on Elohim. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you see, do you see where the... This is, this is what Dr. Fuller calls the power of the accent. Okay, maybe the accent's not inspired, but it's, it's telling you, let's focus right here for just a second. Okay? I can't prove that to you, but I think you would expect syntactically and grammatically to see your big break right here, but no, it happens right there, okay? Uh, and the Lord said to Aram, go yourself. <laughs> uh, take yourself from your land and from your relatives uh, and from your, the house of your father to a land where um, I will show you, Okay? What was I going to show you that's important about this one? Ah, the direct speech. Look at this. Okay. And the Lord said to Abraham, boom, got the zakaf. That's beautiful because that's a good break. But now we get the direct speech. And the biggest break in this whole sentence is in the middle of the direct speech. It doesn't break off the direct speech from the narrative. You would expect for the narrative to be the narrative and the direct speech to be the direct speech. And yet the biggest thrust of this verse, the biggest accent, again, this athnach can occur anywhere. This is the one that's tied down, the tifcha and the saluk. The athnach can occur anywhere and it occurs right there because it seems like the Masoretes may be trying to emphasize this aspect. Abram, we want you to take yourself from everything that you know and follow me. Okay. I think the disciples were, were told stuff like that as well. Yes? <laughs> so that could appear after a single word, like going back to Genesis 21. Could it, it could. It could. It could. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it doesn't often, but boy, when it does. you. So in the same way that this one doesn't occur there, and it kind of becomes, hmm. If it does occur there, then you want to ask yourself, ooh, something's up there. The one, this one's not going to be super helpful. Uh, I have it uh, right here. This one's not super helpful because it's not at the very beginning. But if you look at the direct speech where it occurs, uh, are, you, are you following me on this, right? So Nathan said to David, so it's not at the beginning of the sentence, but look at how far in the front it is. And it's on the, you're the man. Now that may not, that, again, that, I hope that doesn't become your preaching point, right? Like, and then you, you look at all your congregation and say, you're the man. That may be true, but, but like, that's not the point of the accents. The point is, this is what they want you to see. Okay, narrative, yeah, you need to know that. And yeah, there's more that's going to come after this, but this is what we want you to see. 
And this is, this is one where the ethnoch occurs very early in the verse. It's not in the first word, but it occurs very early. Okay. Uh, this next one, uh, I want to show you. So these are some, I, I've got to fly through these because I want to show you this one. Oh, did I not do it? Oh, hold, hang with me real quick. I want to see if I have this. I try to play a trick on, yes, here it is. Good. So, so here we go. First Samuel 3, 3, we've taken the accents out. Okay. So we read this, um, <clears throat> subject fronted here. So now the lamp of God, uh, not yet. Where do you accent that word? Is it terem or terem? Well, but how do you know that? Well, how do you know it's a segalit? Doesn't a segalit get an accent at R1? Okay, well, never mind. All right. Uh, not yet uh, gone out, and Samuel uh, was lying down, the nice little participle there, in the temple of the Lord, where there the ark of God, and we would say was, where there was the ark of God, okay? What's happening right here? Just tell me, what's go what is Samuel doing? What's happening? Okay, Samuel's sleeping. He's lying down somewhere. Where is he lying down? He's lying down in the temple. What part of the temple? Where the Ark of God was. Where was the Ark of God? In the Holy of Holies. So Samuel just pitches a tent in the Holy of Holies and camps out overnight? Sure hope not. I sure hope not. One of the other functions of an athnach is to mark off parenthetical information. To mark off parenthetical information. So what you get here now is Samuel lying down as parenthetical information. The lamp of God had not yet gone out in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was, and at that time, Samuel was lying down. In other words, it's the middle of the night, it's the watch of the night where the oil had not yet run out. Samuel's not up and about. He hasn't just stirred to refill the oil. The, the lamp of God hasn't yet gone out. The oil hasn't needed to be refilled yet. Samuel is fast asleep, and the Lord appears to him. But it's not saying anything about where he's lying down, and the ethnoch marks off that parenthetical information. And so you're not confused about, now why did Samuel lay down in the Holy of Holies? Because I, I don't think that's allowed, right? Again, Maybe it's not exegetically significant. Maybe that's not, that, I, I hope that's not your primary preaching point or teaching point. But it brings clarity uh, by, by at least having a, a functional, I just realized I was probably standing right in front of you this whole time. Okay, I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry. Uh, it, it brings clarity uh, to just have at least a functional knowledge, uh, working knowledge of the accents, okay? So I, I've got uh, no time left. Uh, but I, I will take a couple of questions because I don't. Uh, lunch is next, and I can I can get there shortly. So, uh, a couple questions. Yeah. What's that? I was wondering if we could have the PowerPoint. You you yeah. I'd I'd be glad to send that out to you. Um, I don't know the best way to do that. Uh, yeah, maybe Maya could get it to to everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah, let me do this. Why don't you, if you want a copy of this, if you could send me an email, I know that's going to give me quite a few emails, but 
that's fine. I'm glad to do that. It's A Howell, A H O W E L L, at sbts.edu, and I can just make it a PDF and send it out to you. Uh, I'd be glad to do that. Um, another thing I'll point out to you if you're interested in doing more of this is I went through, uh, there's a, an archived weekend edition set of videos that go through 1 Samuel 3, just like this. So uh, there's, there's usually like a part A and a part B to each of those videos, and the part A is just like a normal daily dose where we walk through the text, and, but part B is breaking down all of the accents, uh, 1 Samuel 3, and those are, that's archived on the website somewhere. So other, other questions? Yes? Okay, so are you asking? Is it um, are you asking? Is it tied to something up here further? Yeah. So like my, my first reading would be because there's Bob at the beginning of the closet too. Yeah. This one and this one. Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> if I were gonna if I'm gonna hold my position and I'm willing to change, but if I'm gonna hold my position that this is parenthetical information, then Hebrew does not have, like we're not going to see parentheses slid in here. And so as a text, we naturally are going to see some sort of conjunction right there. So, so you know, does that make sense? Like in English, we would put parentheses and not need any kind of conjoiner because the parentheses let us know where that section is situated. Here, I would argue the Vav is functioning to situate the, the phrase or the clause in its correct location but that the ethnach is what's making it clear that it's parenthetical information. I don't know if that's satisfactory. I've never thought of it. Uh, I just have always thought it's really bizarre that Samuel's laying down in the, ark, in the place where the Ark of God is. Yeah. And, and even if you don't take it as parenthetical, so let's, let me back up a little bit. Even if you don't take it as parenthetical and you find that here's a statement and here's a statement, the lamp of God had not yet gone out and Samuel was lying down, you still get the big break right there before we start to describe where this is happening. In other words, the Samuel lying down is not happening in this location because of that big break. And you could, then you wouldn't even have to argue for parenthetical. You could just say, sure, this, this is all going on. But still, you're going to have to tie the lamp of God not going out in the temple. That's right. So this asher is explaining what's going on in the temple. The question is that bait. If you take the accents out, Samuel was lying down in the temple. You see, so, so this is certainly referring back to, the, to, to, to what's going on in the temple. But then what is this bait? What is this preposition? So is that Samuel lying down or is that the lamp of God not yet going out? And when you bring the accents in there, that ethnoch tells you there's a break between Samuel's action and the next prepositional phrase. Yeah. Can I read can I read it out? Yeah. The Lamb of God has not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. So the NIV, there you go. Keep using your NIV. You're fine. Just, <laughs> just know. But even in English, you, 
That's right. That's right. So I think they left the ambiguity, maybe on purpose, but maybe if they were thinking about the access, they could have made it a little clearer. Because it is a, a command, you know, yeah. that goes into the most holy book. Yeah. Yeah, the way, the way that I think most people will interpret this without thinking too far into it, which is, I think, a fine explanation, is that Samuel was lying down in the temple precincts, but not actually in the Holy of Holies. So in the temple where the Ark of God was, yes, but he wasn't actually in the Holy of Holies. He was somewhere in the precincts. But reading it with the accents and seeing that as parenthetical information, that emphasizes the fact that he's dead asleep. And there's, so his, his, the Lord coming to him in the night is out of the blue. He's not just, he's not up looking for something. He's actually confused. Like, Eli, what do you need? Right? So just kind of gives some life to it. So, all right. Any final questions? All right. Thank you. Thank you for coming uh, to the conference. And yeah, thank you.